from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. Alright. Welcome Coco Cruisers to the Coco Crew Podcast, episode 38. Very exciting. Woohoo! <laughs> We are joined by our all our regular hosts. Um, of course, this is John Linville, uh, Mr. Uh, Neil Blanchard. You there? Hello. Here. Hello, everyone. <laughs> hello, Neil. Hello, uh, Mike Rowan. How you doing, Myro? I am doing good. Very good. Very good. And uh, of course, uh, our world traveler, Mr. Boise Pete. How you doing, Boise? Hey, doing well. <laughs> Coming to you from the People's Republic of California. <laughs> Um, all right, very exciting. Having a good day, having a good month. And so we're what, four months away from Tandy Assembly? Not even there at this point, I guess. Yeah, frightening. Tandy Assembly is um making good progress, it sounds like, on the planning. There's some exciting news. Um Togofest also moving along. It's now about to ten months away. That'll be what next May. Exciting news the Glen side there. I don't think we have it in their news section, but uh, they are accepting uh uh, nominations for officers uh, for you know the standard uh, president, vice president, secretary, and treasurer. Then they kind of restricted it. Said, well, it really ought to be somebody local. Well, they only have like four people local. <laughs> so I'm not sure what they're going to get out of that. But I don't know. Hopefully, you get somebody exciting and interesting that wants to work on Coca Fest. Well, it's, it's something to look forward to. But um, What's been going on recently? Are you guys keeping busy? Are you doing any projects lately? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I made up a few more Joypad adapters. That was cool. I haven't done those in a while. Yeah. Very cool. The Joypad adapters with the support for the extra buttons, I'll note. And the nice classic old pla- plastic box uh, to uh, plug stuff into, which uh, I think is a bonus. Some people may not agree, but <laughs> very cool. Otherwise, keeping busy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. Keep busy over here. How about you, Mike? You were pretty uh, shoulder to the grindstone there for a while. Are things easing up any? Sadly, no. <laughs> mm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the summer has eaten me alive between uh, repair projects around the house. I've thought about projects a lot, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it goes, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm hoping things will loosen up here in the next month, though. How about you, boys? you got anything running uh, cocoa-wise lately? No, I, unfortunately, I don't. Uh, I went to the fest, and my batteries were charged up, and then all of a sudden, they just drained real fast. Like putting <laughs> two 9-volt batteries together, they just uh, fizzled out. So, <laughs> yeah. Like Mike and Neil, real world is kicking me uh, in the behind. Yeah, well, that definitely happens. Definitely happens. Me lately, lightning struck, and uh, I've been talking for a while about, well, I'd kind of like to do some kind of compiler work or something, or Maybe for the MC-10, but I'm not sure, blah, blah, blah. Well, then um, Brett Gordon posted a, a link, I think over on Discord, he posted a link, a project he found on GitHub that was just this really simple, bare bones, simplest version of BASIC you've ever seen, but a compiler for BASIC 
that compiled to x86, you know, 8086 assembly uh, targeting DOS. It's like the whole thing was like a thousand lines of code. <laughs> and, um, but it's pretty clearly written, uh, maybe not exactly my style, but uh, clear enough to understand. Just kind of grabbed hold of it and said, oh, I wonder what I can do with this. And started um, converting some of the assembly code output to, um, to match um, actually the MC10. Pretty simple, and before long, I had the basic compiler up and able to to compile the example program and run that. And uh, said, so, you know, this thing's pretty simple, and the language could use some extension this way and that way and the other, and all these little it's like they're perfectly bite-sized kind of projects to extend the language here and there. And I've been working on that for a week or two now, and uh, I've got a pretty nice little basic compiler that uh, runs on the MC10. Pretty happy with it. I mean, I've I'm, I'm got, got a list about probably two dozen items or uh, long on changes or improvements I want to make. Pretty excited about it. And um, the assembly code actually should be fairly simple to change over to target uh, the 6809 as well. So, you know, either the Cocoa or the Dragon. But things are looking up for having a, a new uh, basic compiler for uh, for all the color computers uh, here before. Before too long, anyway. Maybe before Cocoa Fest. How's that? Exciting news. <laughs> Good stuff. I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited great. about it. That's great. Yeah. So you found, finally found kind of the perfect project for the perfect moment, which is kind of the way it happens, right? You just, <laughs> you kind of got to get in there and be ready, but then something happens, and then it finally hits you. Oh, I'm, I'm actually ready to do this. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so that's pretty exciting. How about uh, eBay or any other kind of acquisitions? Anybody got anything new? I uh, I do. What you I'm get? very excited. I finally got a Tandy Sensation PC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very exciting. What is it? What is it about the Sensation that uh, turns you on? Uh, the last one Tandy made before yeah, going to sort of, Just sort of uh, the historical marker of it, or whatever. And it has enough power when souped up to do a cocoa emulator. So oh, I yeah. can be cocoa on it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's pretty cool. Mike, how about you? You got anything lately? Not a thing. Nope. No. It's been too busy. <laughs> too busy. Um, <laughs> Boise, I'm assuming you haven't been um, picking up much stuff either? Nope. You know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they kind of go together, I guess, to some degree. Yeah. Some, summer's killing us, man. Summer's killing us. Yeah. Um, I did pick up something neat um, on eBay. I had to look kind of look twice at it when I saw it. I'm still not 100% sure. I think it's really I think it's really something for the Model 1 TRS-80. But it's, it's, a little blo- it's a little metal box. You know, it looks like an old Radio Shack project kit or whatever, old electronics thing. Um, but I mean, it's a manufactured item, it's stenciled front, whatever. But, um, it's called the Data Enhancer DE80, and this is microset on the top. And so basically, it's a little box, and it's got a little eighth inch jacks, um, kind of one on the front and one on the back, I think is the way it is. But basically, it's like an audio filter that you plug in between your computer and your cassette (laughs) and it's supposed to help to clean up the signal so that you can have an easier time loading data cassettes 
But uh, we all complain a little bit about uh, loading stuff off a cassette on the Coco, but I think the Coco is actually pretty good uh, for that compared to some of the other systems. Uh, I hear a lot of people talk about on the TRS-80s and even the Apples and some of the others that um, loading stuff off a cassette was a you know major pain. <laughs> so I guess uh, that's what this sort of box is for. I don't know. It was only about 15 bucks. I said, well, what the hell? Pry <laughs> it open, see what's inside. That's cool. <laughs> you said it was like microset? Uh, uh, data set, I think is what it said on oh, it. Oh, okay. Okay. So, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, cool stuff. That's my eBay acquisition. Um, all right. Well, I think that's probably um, enough to get us started. So, uh, why don't we take a little short break and uh, come back with some announcements. Tandy keeps red, red like the brickie. Tandy keeps green, green like the TV. Tandy makes all of your dreams come true. Tandy's got the magic of Coco too. TRS-80 color computers are better than ever. We improved our most popular family computers with a compact white case, low-profile electric typewriter quality keyboard, and reduced the system price. Come see the new TRS-80 color computer too. Tandy makes a product that's brand new. Tandy's got the magic. Tandy's got the magic. Tandy's got the magic of Coco too. All right, Coco Cruisers. Now we are back with some announcements. You are, of course, listening to the Coco Crew podcast, and we are available on Twitter as at C O C O C R E W P O D C A S T or at Coco Crew podcast. Uh, we also have a Facebook page available uh, that is on Facebook as the Coco Crew Podcast. If you search for it, I'm sure you can find it. We are available through uh, um, iTunes and uh, Google Play for normal podcast downloads. Uh, of course, there are our own RSS feed available at CocoCrew.org. Uh, we are also available for streaming through Stitcher and tune in and tune in of course is the uh, service that alexa likes to use uh, for <laughs> if you have an echo joked for a while about saying uh, alexa play the coco crew podcast well my wife uh, suddenly decided she needed one so <laughs> i was able to verify that that actually does work now <laughs> so, <laughs> very fun all right well so we are a member of the throwback network this is a collection of uh, similarly themed podcasts with a, all with a retro theme, some with technology bent, some not so technology oriented, but still with a, 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 a nod towards the 80s. If you are looking for another outlet for your podcast listening time, then uh, we suggest you check out the Throwback Network. Also, uh, we are a member of the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. This is also a collection of similar um, podcasts. In this case, each one's uh, centered on a game or game console or home computer. And so, um, again, if you're looking for other ways to spend your podcast listening time once you've finished listening to the Coco Crew podcast, then do check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Audio for the Coco Crew podcast is hosted on Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host audio or uh, similar content online, maybe you've got your own podcast, <laughs> then we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears where you will get your audio on your terms. 
If you'd like to reach out and touch uh, someone uh, figuratively on the Coco Crew podcast, then um, we have some email addresses set up to reach all of the hosts. Um, you can use show, H-O-W, at cococrew.org, C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W.org. You can also use podcast at cococrew.org or feedback at cococrew.org. And if you would like to concentrate on just one of the hosts, then you can send email to John, J-O-H-N, at cococrew.org, uh, Neil, N-E-I-L, at cococrew.org, Mike, M-I-K-E, at cococrew.org, or Boise, B-O-I-S-Y, at cococrew.org. Those are our standard announcements. Uh, now we'd like to uh, talk a little bit about upcoming events that we think you might be interested in. Coming up August 4th and 5th of 2018, that'll be VCF, uh, Vintage Computing Festival West. That is going to be held uh, at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Maybe uh, we can send Boise out to, 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 uh, to scout out the place. <laughs> be in a couple of weeks. Following that, uh, on August 25th, 2018, I've got uh, a new one. Looks like kind of a small one. The listener sent this in. Atari Computer Enthusiasts of Columbus uh, will be holding the annual Vintage Computer and Video Game Swap Meet on Saturday, August 25th, 2018. Shoppers are free, and there's a $10 charge per table for dealers. So if you are in the uh, Columbus, Ohio general area, you may want to go and look and see if you can get your vintage computing uh, buying needs taken care of. <laughs> Coming up in September, September 15th and 16th, 2018, BCF Midwest, a vintage computing festival Midwest. Uh, that will be held in uh, its usual location, Elk Grove Village, uh, Illinois, definitely in the Chicago area. BCF Midwest is always a good time. I'm planning to go this year. Very exciting. Heading on to October, October 19th to 20th, 2018, the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, PRGE. This is um, seems to be a pretty well-known and well-attended event. Never been myself. Looks kind of cool. Um, definitely a gaming-oriented convention. Might be some old computer stuff, too. You know, console gaming, maybe old arcade games, that sort of thing. That sounds fun to you, and you're in the Pacific Northwest, and I recommend you get to the Portland Retro Gaming Expo in October, uh, October 19th and 20th. Okay, back to the Chicago area, November 10th, 2018, the Chicago TI International World's Fair. If you are a TI-99 person, this might be your big event. Uh, otherwise, if you are, you know, stuck in the Chicago area at that time, you may want to go check it out anyway. I've <laughs> 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 uh, never been. Don't know anything about it. I've heard it's okay. Could be fun, except there's better uh, places to be. There's a better place to be on November 10th. <laughs> <laughs> November 10th and 11th. Uh, same same day, same weekend. Two day event. Tandy Assembly 2018, and that will be in Springfield, Ohio. Well, yeah, we're we're thrilled. It's going to be fun. So, Tandy Assembly should be a cool event this year. Uh, it was going to be cool anyway, but uh, hopefully even cooler. All right, moving on. Uh, so, I'm announcing World of Commodore 2018, uh, December of 2018. It's usually the first week of December. Last year, it was the second week. Um, uh, so, weekend, I should say. I haven't seen an announcement yet. Kind of a placeholder here. But if you are interested in going to World of Commodore in Toronto, Canada, 
then just be aware it should be coming up in December. Maybe you can go and uh, and uh, say hello to Neil when you get there. I will be here. <laughs> and of course, um, last on the list and first in our hearts, there. <laughs> um, we do have a place on the list here for Coco Fest 2019, which is going to be on May 4th to 5th of 2019. So again, Coco Fest, the big Coco gathering. Previously unrivaled for TRS-80 and Coco people, uh, we may have stirred that up a bit uh, with the Tandy Assembly the, the past couple of years, but uh, still definitely uh, fond, uh, have fond thoughts about Coco Fest and uh, definitely all plan to be there. Absolutely very, love it. Very exciting. Uh, something to plan for. Well, those are our announcements for this month. We're going to take another break, and we'll be back with some news. Telewriter 64, the color computer word processor. Three display formats, 51, 64, or 85 columns by 24 lines. True lowercase characters, user-friendly full-screen editor, write justification, easy hyphenation, drives any printer, embedded format and control codes, runs in 16K, 32K, or 64K, with or without extended color basic. Menu-driven disk and cassette I.O. No hardware modifications necessary. So simple to use, it makes writing fun. Telewriter 64 can display more text on the screen than the Apple II, Atari, TI, VIC, or even the TRS-80 Model 3. Telewriter 64 surpasses all others for user-friendliness and pure power. Step up to professional word processing on the low-cost TRS-80 color computer. Telewriter 64, just $49.95 for cassette or $59.95 for disc. Telewriter 64 from Cognitech. All right. Now we're back with some news. Our first news item uh, is, um, well, it's really a video, and it's not even particularly a new video, but one that I like. Well, it does say published April 2018, so maybe it is fairly new. <laughs> anyway, we had a video from this guy on the last episode, this Kevin Henney. He does uh, talks about computer science topics or whatever, and, and uh, this one he's talking about says procedural programming is back. It never went away. It's uh, sort of a, a thing that, um, you know, no matter how how many new or fashionable uh, practices in the world of computer science and programming however many they show up or whatever, quite often they're really just echoing something that's from the past, which I figure is a cool uh, um, concept or idea for the kind of people that might listen to a retro computing podcast. <laughs> so I enjoyed the video. I think you might too. Seems like a pretty good speaker, this Kevin Henney, so go and check him out. And, yeah, he's, uh, he's entertaining. Moving on, post from... Uh, Phil Harvey Smith, and he's uh, got some pictures from, they recently had the Dragon meetup there in Cambridge, certainly in the UK. He's posting some pictures of that. So if, you're, uh, if you like to look at pictures of people having fun with old computers, <laughs> then uh, <laughs> um, go and check it out. All right. The next item is uh, comes from the Cocoa mailing list. This is from uh, Brendan Donahue. Um, and uh, Brendan is announcing that uh, he's got Coco VGA release 0.9 available. He's got a link for downloads uh, at CocoVGA.com. This is a bug fix in which a VG6 or 64-column mode display may flicker when changing palette colors on the fly. So it's a bug fix. It says users who have a USB blaster, USB blaster JTAG can program it themselves. Otherwise, uh, catch him at an upcoming event. So very cool. 
nice to see um, Brendan continuing to support his things. Uh, you know, a lot of times people make things and kind of throw them over the wall into the community. This is not such a project. It's uh, <laughs> so Brendan is doing a good job keeping up with that. Very good. Yeah, he's he's a great guy. I mean, he'll he'll update him for you at the show if you don't have a bite blaster or if you're not comfortable doing it. Good to see. Yeah, I agree. It's nice to have uh, such good support for a product. Thanks, Brendan. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. The next one we have is from Carlos Camacho. He's uh, quite known in the Coco community, I guess. Now he's on the list on Facebook. What he's doing right now is um, he dived into replacing the feet of a Coco's case. I think yeah. uh, I think we've all been there at one point. Yeah, <laughs> kind of cool. So it's reassuring to have a video of it, just in case you're doing it and uh, uncertain about the next step. Are you insinuating cold feet? <laughs> <laughs> or a foot fetish. Yeah. yeah. Probably, probably better to assemble with the feet already worn. <laughs> yeah, this this next one here, I was kind of sad about this one from the TRS eighty color computer archive. Um as of twenty eighteen, June the fourteenth, uh, all of William Barden's books have been removed by his request. I didn't get a story here. I don't know if anybody else really got a story. It's, it's hard to know what's happening here. I mean, obviously related to copyright. If you, if you don't protect your copyright, there's certain claims that can be moved against you. I wouldn't think protecting the copyright on the books in question would matter much. But uh, some people say that not asserting full copyright on previous works will endanger stuff on the newer works. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I don't know. I'd like to assume this is not Barton getting mad at the community and taking his ball and going home. Hard for it not to feel that way a little bit, <laughs> but I'm going to assume that's not the case. If anybody is in touch with Mr. Barton, I've reached out to him on Facebook, but have had no success in getting a response from him. If you are in touch with Mr. Barton, uh, please tell him we'd like to talk to him, or, or please uh, feel free to get uh, the story and uh, give us some feedback. We'll even put you on the air. <laughs> All right. Well, on the upside, most of his books are pretty readily available. Yes. Yeah, they're not too hard to find for the most part uh, in the, the used book market, and probably still not too hard to find, unlike archive.org or whatever. I don't know if he's made it out there yet or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... All right. We got another one, uh, another game uh, from Jim Gary for the MC10. <laughs> Wouldn't be a podcast without Jim Gary. No, it wouldn't. And, uh, this game's called Clear a Path. It looks kind of neat. Uh, checking it out, checking the video out of it here. What, yeah, what it is think, cool. Did you see it? It's uh, ported from the uh, NEC PC6001, which I guess is also known as the NEC track. Same video hardware, uh, more or less, at least, as the MC10. Pretty cool. He's been doing a few games from that, that platform now. Yeah, very cool. Our next news item is from Genevieve at YouTube. Why we create a look at the people who develop new gamers for retro video game consoles. This is a pretty interesting video, and it's just as it sounds. It's uh, it's pretty lengthy, but it's interviews with people that create, talk about making video games for these old computers and gaming consoles and uh, why they do it and what's involved, and uh, definitely worth watching. Yeah, that was kind of cool. There's a little bit of navel-gazing on uh, by some people like us on why they do the crazy things we all do. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, we, you'll certainly be able to relate if you're a, a co-coer. Yeah, I think so. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so cool video. I spent a little time with that. 
Our next one is from Peter Gubaj, and it's about the Dragon Drive. You probably know a little bit more about this, John. I, I looked at it. I mean, it looks like it's a uh, a drive emulator that's been uh, integrated with, basically merged a GoTech with a, a, a controller, a floppy controller for the Dragon. Pretty interesting. Yeah, I had them available to order. Um, I think I ordered one. <laughs> I spent money on something. I think it was this. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, it looks kind of cool. I mean, so it's same, sort of the same general idea as the Coco SDC, kind of different hardware implementation. I'm not sure if I'll have the nice um, OS editions uh, like SDC DOS or whatever, but um, maybe we, it could grow them later. So I think it's good to see some other hard, hardware options uh, to fulfill that need. Eventually, they're not going to be able to get parts for the Coco SEC, and they're going to have to redesign it. It'd be nice if something else is already in the pipeline. <laughs> and it's good to see something in the Dragon community. Yeah, Dragon community definitely, too. It's nice to see uh, some extra activity there. Did you pick one up, John? I ordered one. I haven't got it yet. But, uh, yeah, same here. I I think it's kind of a you know bill to order, right? Yeah, I think it'll probably be a while, but if you don't order, you don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Our next item is Arcade Game Designer, AGD, for the Coco. This is from OSS003 at Atari Age. Yeah, so this is uh, kind of a cool project. Help people build games without having to do with much programming. Uh, I think there is a little scripting image uh, built into the game system, so you have to – a scripting uh, language, I should say. So you have to do a little bit of scripting, but mostly a matter of producing the art and placing it in uh, – the minimal scripting to tie it together, but you see it can actually target a variety of systems. They've got uh, some examples there in the thread where they've targeted the ZX Spectrum and the uh, the Acorn Atom. The Atom has uh, the 6847 video chip that's common to the Coco Dragon, the MC10. Theoretically, with a little bit of work to support this game system, then we could reap the benefit of a library of pre-existing games that were really designed for other systems that would either immediately run on the Coco or would be already 90% there or something like that. So definitely an attractive option. If anybody is interested in doing that kind of work, I would uh, love definitely encourage you to, to pick it up. Very exciting stuff. Fred, yeah. remember when I wanted to run the business on a color computer? Yeah. And you said it was too hard to move back and forth through all those different programs. Yeah. And you said all the software would cost a thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, you want to hear something? No. VIP Library integrates all the applications we need, and guess who sells it? Tiny Tim. No, SD Enterprises. Swell. All six VIP applications are combined onto one disk: VIP Database, VIP Writer, VIP Spell, VIP Calc, Terminal, and Disk Zap. So. So we can do mail merge. Finances, correspondence, all with VIP library. Yeah? Yeah. And it's not a thousand bucks. It's just $169.95. Wonderful. Finally, we'll have time to go see a movie. No. VIP library, the only integrated application suite your Coco will ever need. 911, what is the address to your emergency? I'm not taking it anymore. I've had enough! Meet Ryan. <laughs> He's been up all night debugging a program on his color computer. If only he had subscribed to The Rainbow. The Rainbow features more information and more in-depth treatment of the TRS-80 color computer, TDP System 100, and Dragon 32 computer than anyone else. If only Ryan had joined the thousands of people who say that The Rainbow is an absolute necessity for their color computers. 
Don't become a statistic. Twelve issues of The Rainbow is just $22. Don't become another Ryan. The Rainbow, the Color Computer Monthly Magazine. All right, uh, so moving on. You've got a Hackaday link. Uh, well, it is a Hackaday, but uh, it's from uh, Andre Skvorsov. <laughs> I just butchered that. Um, I don't know if that's Russian or Ukrainian or whatever, but um, definitely not uh, plain old redneck. So <laughs> sorry, Andre. Uh, feel free to write in uh, or let us know how I mispronounced it. Anyway, he has um, what is called a basic, uh, that's basic like beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code, basic microcomputer based on Arduino. And so this is another one of those projects you see from time to time where rather than trying to re-implement a specific machine from the past, they sort of re-implemented kind of the feel of the past using a little bit more modern hardware, in this case the Arduino hardware. So really, they've got two Arduinos. Or, um, one's doing the main CPU stuff, and one's handling like the keyboard and whatever. And they've got an SD card reader in there somewhere too. Um, point being, if you're into old computers from the 80s, part of your interest might be based around programming in BASIC. <laughs> and so, if so, this one is the kind of thing that might turn you on. You may want to look at this project, see if you can recreate it, or otherwise acquire it and um, do what you can do with it. Looks like fun. <laughs> Thank you, Andre. All right. Oh, here's one. <laughs> the next one. <laughs> this is really for the geeks in the in the audience, I should say. This is from um, a, a Jim McClanahan, who's a ham radio operator, W4JBM, and he has published an article on what he calls uh, the Kolakowski sequence and basic. The Kolokoski sequence is an infinite sequence of symbols in the set 1 and 2 that is its own run-length encoded value. <laughs> and what that means is uh, the first one is the run, so the next one is the value, of, and so 1 and 2, so you have 1 and the value is 2, but then the 2 becomes the length of the next run. So you get 1 and 2, that's the length of the next run. The next run is 2 and 1. So the 1 is the length of the following run, which is 1 and 2. <laughs> and anyway, this is a long sequence of just 1, 2. I don't know how you get excited about that. <laughs> but I def definitely have known people that get excited about these uh, sequences of numbers and whatever. And so... He's got a basic program that he's provided that um, talks about how to do it. It looks like it's written uh, for um, maybe Commodore Basic or could be AppleSoft. I don't know. It's not color, it's not color basic. I can tell because it's got the uh, the percent marks indicating uh, integer variables. With a little work, you could probably drop all these percent marks, and then it would probably work okay. Just slower with a, a color basic. If you're into playing with BASIC and doing weird uh, mathematical sequences, uh, this is your perfect project. So, the Kolakowski sequence in BASIC. Have fun. Thank you, Jim. Kieran Anscombe, who's the author of XROAR, a sometimes uh, Coco Dragon uh, community uh, hero or celebrity or whatever, he did a port uh, of a, a game pro from, um, I think it was from the BBC Micro, called Dungeons, D-U-N-J-U-N-Z. 
for the uh, recent Dragon Gathering, he uh, made up some tapes. <laughs> and uh, so the game will run on either Dragon 32 or Dragon 64, I guess the Tana Dragon as well, or the Tandy Color Computer as long as it's got 32K. He's got some tapes left over, and he's offering them for sale. Now's your chance <laughs> if you need a, a brand new cassette game for your color computer. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, you've had all the cartridge games you could stand, and you're going to have to put it by a cassette game. This is the one to buy. So what do you think, Neil? Did you run it out to get you a, a cassette from Kieran? I am going to. That's, that's <laughs> excellent news. Yeah, I just uh, exchanged yeah. email with him today. <laughs> yeah, that's... He, even, he even picked the American spelling for Dungeons. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Is it allowed in Canada then? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty close. <laughs> oh, Lord. All right. Our next news item is from BBC.com. BBC releases Computer History Archive for your viewing pleasure. This looks pretty cool. I checked it out briefly, and it looks like they, they released quite a few. It's uh, a lot, lot of information here. 267 cool. programs. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. That, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, if you're a BBC Micro person, apparently there's 166 BBC Micro programs included in those TV programs. Uh, so that's pretty neat. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, kind of like the UK version of the Computer Chronicles. Um, but uh, maybe eventually we can get to this Ian McNaught Davis to come to something. <laughs> yeah, it's still cool to see. That's great. Our next news item is from Diego Brizio. I think Brizio. it's Brizio. Yeah. All right. And uh, he's basically working on his uh, website, which is actually a really cool site. I've been on it a few times. Uh, he's updating and adding items to CocoWares.com. And he wants to remind everyone that the site is out there. And uh, I think he is taking, uh, you know, if, if you have a site you want added, he'll put it on there for you. The next one is from Travis Pope, and it's VEF2PNG. Uh, program is released, so it's an OS9 image to PNG converter. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, this VEF is uh, one of those um, came back to the color computer community after being away for a while. Like, what is a VEF? And so I guess it's some sort of picture format that was used by some of the uh, you know the color computer picture viewers or <laughs> whatever. But so it's somewhat unique to the color computer, but it's kind of cool to have. To get some tools that at least document the format <laughs> right. and uh, get a chance to maybe we can view some of those pictures in the future. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's PNG's common, so that's, that's handy. Yeah, well, at least for now. So <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, I know, I know MV Canvas used VEF for its files. Yeah. Oh, that's think, right. It did. I think VEF is one I, I've got some notes to document it somewhere. But there were two or three others that um, just come from that early 90s time frame, I guess, or maybe late 80s, early 90s time frame that they weren't really outside formats, but uh, they weren't documented too well on the inside <laughs> either. So they're, just, they're almost lost. And so trying to make sure we don't lose any formats, um, not just for pictures, but uh, if you've got stuff that's, uh, if you have notes on any of the formats that were used for like compressing, uh, files or uh, like picture formats or any kind of disk uh, image formats or anything like that. Uh, definitely try to dig those out and preserve 
documentation on those, uh, if not actually using it to produce some code uh, to access stuff. Documentation is almost is probably more important because even if you do write some code that works today, uh, it's amazing how much code uh, you can you know what was working five years or ten years ago, and you go to compile it, and today it won't even compile. It's like what changed? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. nothing changed, but you can't even compile it with a modern compiler or whatever. If you've got a stockpile of VEF uh, images, now it's your chance to get them flipped over to PNGs and uh, uploaded uh, to, uh, you know, Instagram or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> be interesting to see the percentage of uh, of them that are adult-themed. Yeah, that would be funny. <laughs> yeah. That would be funny. <laughs> okay, our next story is a Commodore guy's impression of the Coco. This is from RPI Guy. 9907 at Atari Age. Uh, this, so this is an uh, Atari Age forum. It, it's kind of an interesting thread, and it's from a Commodore person, kind of his view of the Coco 3 and what he thought was good, good about it and what he thought was bad about it. Yeah. Interesting reading. So I included it here both from the, you know, the outsider's perspective and for, to give us an idea of what other people think and then also to kind of promote that. There is some activity over on Atari Age, <laughs> which is a great site for a lot of vintage computing and gaming uh, uh, things. So uh, if forum sites like Atari Age turn you on, then uh, maybe it's a good place to go and represent for the Coco. <laughs> Seems to be. Yep. So not just about Ataris. No, it's a, a little poorly named. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff. Uh, the biggest thing that Atari Age is is a promoter of cartridges for all these old platforms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I should uh, contact, uh, I think the guy's name is Al. Seriously, if he wants to sell our cartridges. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I, maybe I should replace Facebook with Atari Age. That might be good for me. It might be good for your attitude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, not your attitude specifically, but just in general. Yeah, anyone's to, attitude, right. Yeah. <laughs> A breath of fresh air. <laughs> yeah. Our next story is from Lewin Day at Hackaday, and it's a light gun for LCDs, thanks to maths. I love that maths, uh, the, the UK English, uh, you know, instead of saying yeah. mathematics or just math, they say maths. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure why it's plural. Um, anyway, yeah, it's kind of neat that... Um, I saw this somewhere else before I saw this listing and wasn't sure if the guy was serious or I think he had like a, you know, one of the fundraising sites like a Kickstarter or, or GoFundMe or something. And I wasn't quite sure if it was serious or not. I'm still not a hundred percent sure, but he's still flogging it. So maybe he's serious. I mean, it sounds reasonable. You know, use digital photography and, and uh, computer and machine vision to kind of square up the uh, the video image and, and output, you know, location where you're actually focusing pistol or whatever. But it's plausible. You could make it work. Maybe we'll be able to play Iron Forest on your LCDs well, at some yeah. point. That would be awesome. But yeah, I've got – I've had some ideas on how to do this myself um, that I think are – plausible, but I just haven't been dedicated enough to yeah, you, <laughs> so work through how to do it. You were talking about this a few years ago to me. Sure. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, yeah, I think um, you could use, uh, you know, a Wiimote and, uh, you know, uh, like a Raspberry Pi or something to do some of the processing for you and then create like a, you know, a, a pseudo signal uh, for, for the video or whatever. Um, I don't know. I think you could do it, <laughs> but uh, not unlike what he's doing, but not exactly the same. Hopefully he'll figure it out and maybe we can just use his. <laughs> <laughs> Our next item is from Kerry Sharfglass at Hackaday. Mm-hmm. ESP8266 home computer hides unexpected gems. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is another one of those. Uh, if you like programming in basic, you might be interested in something like this. So, in this case, it's got uh, that ESP8266, which is you know, essentially, it's a wireless uh, Wi-Fi kind of chip that has a CPU in it uh, that people are using for a variety of things uh, in the hacker world. And in this case, they're running BASIC on it. And so it's uh, like we, we had an earlier project and we mentioned that was uh, you running BASIC on uh, Arduino. And if you want to run it on the ESP8266, uh, you know, here's an, another option for doing it. Could be cool. Yeah, it even has composite video. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's handy. <laughs> okay, so we have another one from Diego Brizo. In Furious Felines 2, mice are so hungry that they will dig through the walls to get to the cheese. <laughs> Coming soon to a Coco 3 near you. So this is sort of a stealth announcement of a new video game for the Coco 3. So he had this game called Furious Felines, which was sort of inspired by Angry Birds. And I guess now he's got a follow-on game. Looks like similar graphics, um, yeah. with the mice chewing through the bottom of the walls or something. <laughs> I don't know how. Looks like the walls would collapse once they went through, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm interested got... to to see how the gameplay is because. Uh, yeah. And uh, for our listeners, if you haven't checked out Furious Felines, you, it's definitely worth it. It's uh, it's a cool game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it so, is. So very cool. Thanks, Diego. Look forward to seeing the uh, full version. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Hey, it looks good. I saw his poster on Facebook. Screenshots <laughs> look great. No, it does look good. All right, next one we got a blog entry from uh, Jeff Wozniak. I don't know if it's uh, related to the uh, <laughs> the Woz from the Apple world or not, but um, massacring C pointers. He says, I'm taking a break from debugging books to talk about a calamitous um, bleep show of textbook writing, mastering C-pointers, tools for programming power. So basically, he trashes this old textbook on uh, written uh, to teach people how to program using pointers in C, the C language. First, I wasn't sure if it was worth listing. He kind of throws up some C code, kind of like the... See, this is obviously terrible, and you kind of have to look at it a couple of times to, to figure out, well, well, that's, uh, oh, I see that, you know. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you, know you just throw up a piece of code, and not everybody's going to see it immediately, what's wrong with it, and not everybody's going to agree that it's the most horrific, horrific thing ever. I, I won't disagree that uh, what he shows is terrible, but uh, <laughs> anyway, it kind of goes through. The point, I, the reason I include it is not just, to, to let him tear up, uh, to, to publicize him tearing up this poor old author's work, but uh, it's to kind of emphasize that just because he picked up an old book on programming, 
which often are good reads and often can be uh, very educational, but might also be trash. <laughs> Just like you might pick up a book today and the information <laughs> in is hardly worth the paper it's written on, you might pick up an old book that's exactly like that too. So, you know, always uh, take everything with a grain of salt, I guess is the point there. But interesting, you know, some some of us, I think, are prone to saying, well, this is an old book on programming. They really knew what they were doing back then. Ancient and, uh, wisdom, yeah. Ancient, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, be careful. It's not all good. Um, <laughs> so. For years, air fresheners have been used to hide unpleasant odors. But until now, your choices have always been wildflowers, potpourri, country spices, citrus, and other floral derivatives. That's all about to change with new RetroFresh from Jackson & Jackson. RetroFresh is a walk down memory lane. Each fragrant mist smells like your favorite retro computers. Salmon patties for dinner? Now it's the scent of printer ribbons, Apple IIs, and TRS-80s. Too many cats in the house? Now it's just the scent of heating power supplies, newly opened diskettes, and warm CRTs. Uncle Bob, use your bathroom after the chili cook-off? Replace that offensive odor with the aroma of new computers. New RetroFresh comes in three scents. Apple II and TRS-80s. Warm power supply and CRTs. And new computer. It's like a VCF in a can. New RetroFresh. Free yourself from the floral prison of other air fresheners. Jackson & Jackson is an air freshener company. New from Carriage Return New Line Cinema. Good morning, Major. Sir, why was I brought here? What you're about to hear is classified top secret presidential. What is this place? This is where you'll train. Major, the war isn't going well for Earth. This is the alien's newest attack ship, the TRG-5. We need you to infiltrate the alien base, steal the core components, and then return them for analysis. Pay attention, Major. Your suit will absorb radiation, but only a limited amount. There are three decontamination chambers in the facility. It's critical that you reach each one if you want to live. We only have four weeks to prep for this. What do you need from me? Your best, Major. Major, do you hear that sound? That sound means you're dead. Too much radiation. Reset your suit and try again. Why did you pick me? Because I think you're the best man for the job. Because we've only got one shot at this. What if I fail? Then we all die. Power up your suit, Major. This is your electro gun. Aim it and fire. Remember, each time you fire your weapon and use your cloak, you're exposing your suit to even more radiation. Major, it's time. I'm bringing the access point. Wish me luck. I'm going in. Shock Trooper, rated Coco 13. All right, so let's see, moving on. Got a Facebook post from Richard Kelly. Says, uh, he, so he's uploaded a file here. I guess this is a disk image. The Ladderman 2 uh, extended color basic version. The file seems to disappear. Simple platforming game with 25 levels. Graphics inspired by releases from Tom Mix. Sound like maybe not the greatest game. It says it's slow. But <laughs> um, versus, but here totally it is. In basic? Um, well, it must be, but here it is for those who want to see the game before it's ported to a compiled C Basic 3 form. 
So I don't I didn't pull down the, the image, but it sounds like maybe it is written in basic. I don't know. Anybody check out Ladderman? Yeah, I, th- I think it is in basic actually. The graphics look kind of nice. Yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah, nice. so, I don't know. Hopefully that's fun. I wonder how the CBase 3 uh, compile came out. Oh, well, so I guess we'll just have to see. But uh, Richard, would love to hear from you if you did get it compiled, how, what you had to do and what were your results. Uh, love to hear from you or write up a blog or something. <laughs> Let us know. So Apple II for Sir Joy, gaming through the serial port. I haven't looked at this yet. Uh, this has, I guess, it's, is this a new hardware product? Yeah, so it's an, it's an Apple II product. Uh, I think it's really for the Apple IIc, which is a compact one. It says, uh, the device allows you to connect four digital joysticks to an Apple II computer using a serial port. So that's why I included it. Is, uh, it's kind of interesting. Well, A, you know, so many people claiming to be interested in interfacing through the serial ports in the Cocoa world these days. <laughs> Here's something you might could use. <laughs> but it's it's not a terrible idea. I think they would hang a microcontroller off of a serial port and then hang four joystick ports off of the microcontroller. And so it kind of gives you a way to, to expand your number of inputs through your one serial port. Uh, again, not a terrible idea as long as you can keep the latency down to something that's appropriate for whatever games you're playing. So this next news item is something that is very cool. Brett Gordon, I presume, Beretta, yeah. has a great start to a Plato client for the Coco 3. Uh, for those of you don't, who don't know what Plato is, it is an, uh, I, I guess, what, a late 70s, early 80s kind of... Uh, Vintage even, terminal service, right? Even before yeah. that, right? It was even uh, even through the eighties, I think. You know, it's almost like the Prodigy, which would had a client that would could actually do graphics yeah. and stuff. So I guess right. the Plato client could actually do graphics. You know, like real graphics, not like just ANSI graphics. Correct. Um, Correct. And so, and uh, I've been advocating for something like that for a while for the Coco. Uh, was looking at maybe doing something Coco specific, but this is cross-platform, and uh, it looks like he's got some screenshots and it's working. I don't know if it's OS nine or, or Fusix, but this is a great, uh, great start. Yeah, I think it is actually supposed to be on uh, Disk Extended Color Basic. Oh wow, even better! Uh, is a little it, unusual for Beretta, but yeah, it, I don't know if it's written in Basic or written in Assembly, but. Uh, yeah, Great. I think it's I think it's assembly code, but it is written to run under Disk Basic or whatever to, cool. to maximize the audience or whatever. It is cool. You can um, combine some of the interest that people have had with using these uh, serial port to internet adapters or whatever. So you can get your cocoa on the net and have a place to actually get content for it, and the content might actually be a little more modern-ish or whatever than just hooking up to an old BBS. And much as we all are fond of old BBSs, they are a bit like visiting uh, an old folks' home. Oh, goodness. Just to put a shameful plug out there, uh, my BBS Internal Affairs is definitely not old folks' home. <laughs> Well, Neil, what can I say? Uh, the singles BBS yeah. in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to rename it to Senior Village or something like that. Yeah. 
<laughs> Tandysonly.com. <laughs> oh, good times. Well, cool. So, yeah, anyway, the, uh, this is a good thing, and I, I'm, I'm all behind it, uh, having a Plato client, especially if you can do things like get modern news and things that are relevant. It'd be kind of cool. All right, so uh, my VCC project update by Walter Zambotti. This looks like a Cocoa post where Walter has is, is updated VCC for some type of graphics uh, acceleration. Is that what you see, John? My impression is that you know, the original sources in VCC were written for um, you know, DirectX, I guess, you know, very Windows-specific. And I think they're converting the graphics to target SDL, which is a uh, you know, more platform agnostic version of graphics. And uh, I think he's indicating he's making some progress there. Is that, uh, that's LiBSDL, right? I've used that on Mac OS. Yeah, I think so. It is a cross-platform uh, graphics package, yep. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, uh, so, uh, does that mean that VCC is going to go on another platform? I think he's targeting Linux. I mean, once it's once it's on SDL, it should be fairly easy to, to re-plumb. Re yeah. Pile it back out to Windows and Mac and maybe even some other systems. So, pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. So, we got to something here from pagetable.com. We'll see who was. Uh, that's um, Michael Steele. And he does a lot of really cool deep dives into like Commodore 64 and um, 6502 assembly and stuff like that. Here, he's got a, it says something called Tamu. This Tamu is a super cheap open source hardware, 24 megahertz ARM computer with 8 kilobytes of RAM, 64 kilobytes of ROM, and it fits into your USB connector. <laughs> um, it sounds like what he's done is taking some very tiny piece of computer kit from about the size of a thumb drive, and uh, he's ported a... He, so he's got a version of um, Commodore 64 Basic that he, I think he basically turn the 6502 assembler either manually or maybe with a, a tool of some sort and basically turned it into a C implementation of the Commodore 64 basic <laughs> that you can use like a shell, <laughs> which is kind of crazy by itself. But So he's got that running on top of this little thumb-sized computer that plugs into a USB port. This is probably in the category of, you know, not a Cocoa project, but maybe it could be. There's a stuff on the net where people have taken the color basic and, and stripped it down. And I kind of did a version of that myself for, uh, where we could run color basic on, uh, on, um, Oh, what is that little board called? Um, so you could do something like this for color basic. It's at the C64 basic. I don't know if anybody's that motivated for color basic as a shell for a tiny thumb size computer, but I don't know. <laughs> No, this is what some other people are doing, so get out there and get your geek on. All right, so let's see, moving on to the next one. So this little, I think I mentioned in the past that I've got a connection to a local um, makerspace, and this uh, set of photos is actually from the, 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 the makerspace and the guy who's kind of the, the head up of it. There's a friend of mine named uh, Ben Harris or Bennett Harris. Um, and, uh, but it's a cool little construction, uh, photo write up or photo blog or whatever. They took, um, now this is for Commodore 64, 
Let's see, he's got a Commodore 64, the later model, the non-bread bin model, I guess, and a Commodore disk drive. He's kind of put them together into what almost looks like a picnic tray. (laughs) 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 And and so he's kind of mounted them in there, and the the tray has cut out so that you can still access the, the disk drive to feed it diskettes. And then you can like pick the thing up and carry it around. It's almost like, well, it's almost like a Coco style case or a, 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 a Tandy 1000HX style case wrapped around this, uh, Commodore 64 in the disk drive. And then you can set a monitor on top. Then you can do your retro computing that way. Uh, certainly could do a similar project uh, around a Coco case and, uh, FD501. <laughs> Um, plugged in there. Uh, might want to have to do something about the uh, the floppy controller sticking out the side, but hey, uh, you know details. <laughs> yeah, a little um, ribbon cable. You're all set. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool, pretty cool though. Great pictures uh, of that. Yeah, so it's a nice write up and it's a nice idea. I thought some people might be inspired by it. Very cool. So the next one, the last, uh, let's see, this is from David Mitchell, David Mitchell. Uh, I think he's in the UK for what it's worth. And he's got, um, what he calls SG Edit Remix. And SG Edit was a, uh, the original SG Edit came from Simon Jonasson. He built a kind of a web tool to let you draw using the semi-graphics modes and then save off the result as a, you know, collection of data bytes to recreate the picture. And uh, at some point, uh, David Mitchell picked that up and has been um, enhancing it. And so it says version 2.2, likely character now highlighted. Assembly output now has the display routine. So I guess he's got a version where you can save it as uh, assembled source. And maybe he's got some code that will display the source. DSV import, export, edit. So there's a different format for saving the picture. Safely prompt before CLS. I guess that's uh, so you don't wipe out your work <laughs> accidentally. Then it says move to GitLab. So GitLab was like the new alternative to GitHub from the people that are paranoid about Microsoft buying GitHub. <laughs> so um, anyway, SGS kind of, <laughs> is kind of a cool tool. <laughs> and it's good to see it's uh, uh, getting some uh, some enhanced life. I used uh, SGA, the uh, Simon's original version. I used that to do the uh, Christmas tree stuff in the uh, Xmas Rush, you know, the, the the title screen. All right. Next news item is from uh, Rick Adams. He rescued his Delphi term Cocoa 3 terminal program source. Um, so he's actually releasing this, and it was rescued. Uh, Mr. Reitveld at Cocoa Fest was able to um, get the data off some old floppies he had. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, definitely cool to get together and get a little uh, mixture of talents in the in room together, like at Coca Fest, and uh, good things happen. <laughs> so very cool to see that, and both to see the the source recovered and to see Rick uh, being generous with the community and making it available. Stuff like that getting lost, that's not good. Mm-hmm. All right, our next news item is from John Nelson Rose. Retro games as a revivalist mo- movement? 
<laughs> yeah. So this is a Gamma Sutra link. Uh, they they take games pretty seriously over at Gamma Sutra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> and so this is kind of comparing uh, some gaming topics uh, to um, to like uh, artwork or, or the architecture. I guess it's architecture specifically. You hear about like uh, Greek revival architecture versus uh, neoclassical, and blah blah blah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So he's kind of putting game design in some of the same terms that people have put like art design in in the past. <laughs> so kind of a cool read, maybe a little yeah. thick on the academics, um, but you know, let me check it out. Uh, maybe it'll appeal to you. All right, our next news item. Uh, this one's this one's actually kind of interesting to me. Is it seems to you know we seem to hear about this uh, every every so often. Um, Radio Shack's comeback is taking shape, and this was a New York Post. Uh, yeah, uh, another Radio Shack's on its way back kind of story. We'll see. You know, hopefully uh, good things will happen to Radio Shack despite themselves or whatever. I'd like to see them stick around in some form. Uh, certainly would like it if they could come back and be useful to me again. That'd be <laughs> personal yeah. plus for me. But good start. Yeah. I don't know if that'll well, ever that... happen. <laughs> well, well, that... uh, this, what is Hobby Town? You guys have those around you? I've never heard uh, of that. We do yes. have one around. Yeah, there are some that's not too far away. Um, so you're talking about the Hobby Town? They're going to have the the Radio Shack section in the Hobby Town. So that might be a, a you know, if I just have to have that resistor that I don't have time to order online, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it uh, might be a, a possibility. So that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> well, you know, and I think there's uh, still hope because I mean that one Radio Shack you found, Mike, near your place. So that oh. those pictures are amazing. Yeah, could look nice. Yeah, that's a was a fun little time machine to go into. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, I mean that that parts wall there. Yeah, that it looks was. like an old style uh, '80s oh. uh, Radio Shack for sure. And it was a franchise, Mike. Yes, but it's closer to me than Hobby Town, USA. <laughs> Very cool. Might, might be worth donating some cocos in there <laughs> to really simulate that display. Well, speaking of time machine, our uh, our, our next story, and I, I pity any fools that don't read it. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is. This is from uh, Riot at YouTube, and it's Mr. T. Be somebody or be somebody's fool. You know, Mike, you, you got to say that in Mr. T style with the horse. <laughs> I pitied fool. So, uh, I'm not even sure where I came across this this uh, video link, but uh, it uh, just was so 80s. It just screamed yep. 80s at me. Yeah, yep. I just loved it. I mean, even just looking at the kids in it and whatever, it's like, man, that is just so cool. Um, so that's why I included it, because I thought other people might enjoy it. All right, our next story is from Nick Bermintis. Gunstar Game Blog, Chapter 6, Let There Be Music, Part 3. It's kind of funny, because uh, Nick is talking about a problem that I'm sure many programmers encounter, is that... Uh, working on his uh, game music composer to support his Gunstar game, but that's turned into, you know, taken over. It's kind of the project right now at the moment. Uh, he got his own GMC on his back now. <laughs> 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 that so, sounds funny. Yeah, it is. 
it happens to the, to all of us at some point where you pick up a, a project to, to to advance another project and then the, the the new project becomes the project. Hopefully we'll get that worked out and maybe we'll see a Gunstar game eventually. That'd be cool. <laughs> oh, always good reading on uh, his blog, though. Yep. All right, um, our, our final news story. It's from uh, Camillus Blocks. My real MX mechanical keyboard prototype is getting there. A few things to make better and then sublimation print some keys. <laughs> yeah, so in in uh, honor to our of our Cloud Nine project uh, we talked about earlier with mechanical keyboards, uh, he's uh, of course can't do a decent project in the Cocoa community without someone else coming along to do the same project. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, here's uh, something that proves the rule. Um, so Camus is working on his own mechanical keyboard. Um, looks like it could be cool. Uh, his um, Connector looks um, a little sketchy, but <laughs> maybe you get that one worked out with a nicer connector. Very cool. So we might get some new keyboards over the next year or two. Uh, that might be cool. All right. Well, that covers our news for this week. Take another break, and we'll be back with some feedback. What's going on, Coco Cruisers? The original gamer Stevie Stroh here, and I'm the host of Coco Talk. What is Coco Talk, you ask? Well, we are a weekly live talk show on YouTube featuring the Tandy Color Computer. And guess what? Coco Talk is now also available as an audio podcast for your listening pleasure. So when you are done listening to the Coco Crew podcast, come check us out at CocoTalk.live for weekly live talk featuring the Tandy Color Computer. We'll see you there, Coco Cruisers. Tandy Assembly. Tandy Assembly is about Radio Shack and Tandy Computers. Tandy Assembly is about interacting. Tandy Assembly is about people. Tandy Assembly is about fun. The first gathering of its kind. Computers of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. All Radio Shack and Tandy makes and models. Join Join us. us. Don't miss Tandy Assembly. In Springfield, Ohio, November 10th and 11th. Whether you're near or far. Tandy Assembly is for everyone. Visit our webpage at www.tandyassembly.com. Tandy Assembly. Okay, now we're back with some feedback. Uh, we've got a couple items this month. Um, first is a, a reminder from Mr. D. Bruce Moore, our Canadian contact. Oh, wait, I guess that's Neil. Oh, well. Neil, sorry, I didn't, uh, didn't want to break it to you this way. <laughs> no, and, uh, so Mr. Bruce uh, has um, been working on a um, basically a radio play that uh, he calls Coco Forever. This is my multimedia Coco product, the Coco Forever series, was released in the spring of 2018 with episode, episodes available on cocoforever.gracenote.ca. He's got an episodic radio play available. I think he charges a couple of bucks an episode. I'm not sure of the price. You'll have to look it up. It's it's entertaining. I've heard the first couple of episodes he uh, has made available. Uh, it is a fictional story. Uh, it's kind of entertaining. Put some uh, people in different situations or make a few different historical choices or what would the uh, kind of speculating on how the world might be different. It's kind of fun. Thank you, Bruce. And the next one is comes from Chad Johnson. Uh, he posted on Facebook, 
he called it trolling. I think we really meant lurking, or most of us would call it lurking. He'd been lurking for a while and was encouraging other lurkers to to hang out and to participate in the community. But um, in his, he mentioned the Coco Crew. He says, uh, finding the Coco Crew podcast was the greatest thing ever. I spent hundreds of dollars due to listening without a shadow of regret. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's High the, praise. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, so, Chad. Yeah, so I guess he's uh, been inspired by some of the projects we've talked about or whatever to uh, spend a little money in the community, so that's good. Um, very exciting. So, so the Cocoa Crew is contributing to the Cocoa economy. Yeah, I guess so. We hope so. <laughs> <laughs> very exciting. All right, well, that'll, that's our feedback for this month, so take another little break and be back with um, the rest of the show. Where's Jill? She's really lonely. She's been spending hours on her Tandy 1000 again. Do you think Dave will ever find his true love? Not if he's been playing Quasar Commander on his Coco all day. We used to be lonely. Until we met on Tandy'sOnly.com. Tandy'sOnly.com is the new online dating site for folks who won't give up their Tandy computers. You don't have to be lonely at tandysonly.com. All right, welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Um, here we're going to have a little host discussion. The topic of the discussion uh, I've listed is are, are we Coco reporters or Coco commentators? And by we, I mean the host on the show here. And uh, kind of the gist of the discussion is um, when there's some news in the Coco community, are we supposed to just sort of just totally just relate the news? Are we supposed to cheerlead everything that comes on? Or, you know, if we have something that that shows up and we that kind of leaves us cold uh, or that maybe we think is a bad idea, you know, is it, is it our place or even might it be our responsibility to pass on our general opinion uh, to the community, to our listeners? Perhaps I'm revealing my position <laughs> a little early, but uh, do we owe it to the listeners to give you our, our honest opinion about things or are we supposed to just, um, you know, cheerlead and shut up? And so with that said, maybe I'll open it up. Uh, to my broadcasting partners here, Mike, do you uh, do you have anything open? I guess it depends on the context, right? Some sometimes we are, and uh, I th- most of the time we're we're not commentators. I don't think so. We're more reporters, and we kind of shift gears maybe to do commentary for a specific reason, uh, as a specific topic, to focus on something per se. We certainly report on events, the news items. I think mostly where this issue comes up is, you know, with specific products or offerings that people make in the community. I don't think we're obligated to cheerlead everything like you like you say. I like to think we do a, a fair job of reporting things. I don't feel like we're going out of our way to uh, destroy anyone or, or uh, <laughs> no, no. put put people down. We don't want to do that. We want to, you know, boost the community. I, I think everybody's interested in that. From from that end, I don't really think that we're being critics or, you know, fulfilling a, a reviewer role, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we may make comments about, about things, uh, but uh, I don't think, I don't think he can cite any, <laughs> any kind of vicious attack or, uh, 
uh, denouncing of, of anyone's uh, work or, or, or projects. So. Well, yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, as someone who's offered products to the community uh, in you know not too long in the past, or maybe even in current times, I'll say I don't feel like the community in general has made a habit of pulling punches about commenting on things that I've offered. <laughs> and, and so I think if uh, if the community somehow expects me to to uh, be the only one to hold their fire while the community shoots at me, um, uh, I think they're going to be mistaken or, or disappointed in that. Um, but this isn't personal. Uh, it's not like I'm... Uh, I'm not, like you said, I'm not citing any specific thing. I'm just uh, going to say that the ideas come up and some of them are exciting and I'll, I'll try to find the positive bits of any uh, idea that comes up. But some ideas leave me a little cold and, um, you know, they make me wonder, well, not only why, I mean, it's one thing, it's your thing, you're scratching your itch, you do you, okay, that's fine. When you're, on the other hand, trying to produce a product that you want people to buy, and then you throw it out there, and to me it's like, well, I don't know why anybody would need that or why anybody would want that. Or if you want to do that, you could use this other thing that already exists or is free or whatever. Well, I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what I'm, uh, I'm going to say it. I'm going to, and like I said, um, you know, you come out with your new product that, uh, Automatically brushes people's teeth. And brushes people's teeth. Uh, I'm gonna tell you that. Oh, well, that's fine. But everybody's already got a toothbrush, and it doesn't take that much effort to brush your own teeth. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the only problem is, is that the toothbrush isn't cocoa powered. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what do you think, Neil? I mean, part of those segments that you do on the show is particularly to do a review. Of right. games and such. Now, I haven't heard you do any negative reviews that I can recall, and I'm sure no. you don't want to do a negative review if you don't, if the, if there's any redeeming quality, but right. do you feel like you're obligated? I mean, obviously you don't review everything. No, I mean, you kind of, I kind of pick and choose what I'm going to review. Um, but I, I think we're more reporters, honestly, uh, you know, and, and with projects, I think you have to, you know, we mentioned this before, but I think you have to do it for yourself. You know, you don't want to rely on uh, you know getting all this praise from everybody. I mean, you know, Facebook's good enough for that. But mm. um, you know, it, it, you know, and everyone's going to have different interests too. You know, uh, you know what one person finds a, in a project, you know, might be uh, some good qualities, and someone else won't. So you, can, you can't please everybody. But, uh, so but you, definitely getting the information out there. I mean, that that counts in itself. Yeah. Well, so to me, there's a conflict in what you said. I mean, you say we're reporters, but then you can't expect everybody to praise you. I mean, that's saying, you know, we we offer reporting, you know, we report that things have happened, but we're not going to necessarily praise it. <laughs> um, well, that, that's to just... To me, it sounds like you're opening up there that we may comment on the project. That's right. I mean, more, more or less as an information service. You know, yeah. e even if we don't agree with a certain project or product, you know, we st we still announce it, right? Well, right. We announce it, and that's true. And so, we, and from that respect, we report news. Uh, we certainly have reported news on projects that compete with projects that we ourselves or products that we ourselves have offered. We've reported on other people's games. We've reported on other people's sound options. 
joypad other people's joystick adapters or joypad adapters. So we're certainly reporting on other stuff. And for the most part, I mean, when there's a direct conflict, I think we mostly keep our mouth shut. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> just from the political standpoint. Right. Um, so rather not name specific projects on this discussion. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there are projects that are in the community, even products that are in their community, that I honestly think you've, you've lost your mind if you if you bothered to buy them or install them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. Honestly, I think there's some of them are just they're practically pickpocketing the people that are taking the money, that are, that are, that are spending money on them. You well, know, you know, every one of us on here on the podcast right now have uh... – you know, been involved with producing things or reselling things, and we're we're subject to all the same you know <laughs> barbs and arrows as any other project that's out Certainly. there. Because you're yeah, always going to have naysayers. You're always going to have, and ultimately, you know, like you said, you you've got to do this for yourself. Ultimately, vote with your dollars, right? Exactly. If, if you like a project and you're interested in it, then by all means, support it and. Uh, you know, and at the same time, you don't have to go on some campaign against something you, you don't like. Just don't buy it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. I I, def- I don't think that we should go on a jihad against anybody's stuff. Or maybe that's too politically sensitive a word. But I don't think we should just denounce stuff. But I guess the complaint is that sometimes they'll say something like, here's this thing. I'm not sure why you'd want it. But if you do, then contact so-and-so. Now, I don't really see a problem with saying that, or else I wouldn't say it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, apparently some people are bothered by that kind of that of terminology or whatever when it's about something they produced. I produce things. You guys have produced things. Some of the things I produced have gotten quite a bit of criticism, much of it, in my opinion, unfair or at least misguided. So my point would be, well, okay, maybe I'm wrong, being wrong or misguided, but you know, nobody held back on their opinions of my stuff. So <laughs> how much do you expect me to hold back on my opinions of your stuff when I'm reporting it? Well, I was thinking about this as you guys were talking. Um, whether we, whether the Coca Group podcast should be considered Coca reporters or commentary, I'll put it this way: uh, when I was growing up, my favorite thing to listen to on the radio was Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey played both roles. He read the news, and he also gave commentary. And I find value in both of those things. I think we should read the news, any product, whether it's competing or not, with with the concern or an interest of ours. We should be fair. We should report on it. And as far as commenting goes, there's four of us currently on this podcast, and we always don't walk to the beat of the same drum. So John, what you may not find interesting, I may find interesting, or vice versa, or Mike or Neil. So I think having that eclectic group of people uh, is going to bring in interesting commentary. We won't necessarily all be trumpeting the same thing or being uh, partial to or impartial to the same thing. So I think we should play a role both as reading the news passionately at times, I guess, but also feeling free to comment and offer our perspectives, and that's where the commentary comes in. That's my take on it. And I would agree with that. Well, let me, let me just give an example. There's a podcast out there called Eaten by a Groom, and the the gist of the podcast is the, the, the hosts play Infocom games, and they discuss them, right? 
The first part of their podcast, they discuss the games without talking about the solutions to any problems or or the solutions to any puzzles or any kind of teaser or any kind of spoilers or whatever. And then they part way through the podcast, they make a big deal about this is a spoiler fence. You know, don't listen to the podcast beyond this if you don't want any spoilers. And then after the spoiler fence, then they'll talk about, well, on, on this puzzle, I had to go left and go right, and I had to pick up the monkey and throw it to across the river or, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So my point or my question would be, you know, do we need some, which I, I feel like we already kind of have a, this is the new segment, and, okay, the new segment's over, and now we're going to have a host discussion. But I, I guess the complaint would be that even inside the new segment, maybe I've occasionally said something like, I don't know why you would want this, but if you do, <laughs> then go order. And that's a little too much opinion for some folks, I suppose. But do we need some kind of, uh, or should we have, or is it desirable, or you know, should we think about <laughs> um, some kind of uh, opinion fence? You know, do we need to be total straight men during the news, uh, or is it okay to uh, show a little, uh, a little? Well, I'm not sure why this is interesting. Uh, you know, is that kind of common okay? I personally think that we should continue what we're doing, maybe just be a little bit more sensitive to the interests of those who whose products we talk about. And, you know, it's it's a matter of uh, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, I guess. Sure. Not that, not that you know, it's okay to say, look, this isn't for me, and here's why it isn't for me, but it might be for you. It's right. an all. It's all about how you word it and how you say it. But I would right. not try to separate the commentary from the news because that's part of the fun of listening to the podcast. <laughs> right. Well, I agree with that. There have been times when there was maybe not that much news, <laughs> and especially back when I was reading all the news items myself. And you get fifteen or twenty or thirty items into some. Which is, if there's 30 items, there must be some news. But maybe there's 20 items, and maybe it's, you know, not, you know, maybe I've had to scrape them together. You know what I mean? And you get 20 items in or 15 items in, and it's kind of scraped together, maybe not the most newsworthy month. And boy, it gets a little tough to keep going. (laughs) And then somebody says, here's somebody's product that, you know, it's their product, and you, you know, it's their baby. I guess you don't want to call their baby ugly, you know. And I guess, I guess that's the feeling. Maybe that's the point. Is it feels like you're calling their baby ugly? There's things that people to this day say about, say, you know, my game master cartridge. That to me, I just want to say, how many times do I have to point out that that is just completely wrong? You know, I just want to jump through the, the, uh, the YouTube, <laughs> and choke somebody. You know. <laughs> You know, maybe it's the same kind of thing when I say, well, I don't get it, but maybe you do. I, I guess that could be somebody's pet peeve, you know. So if it's your pet peeve, I'm sorry. I don't mean to provoke your pet peeve. I won't promise never to do it. Um, I'll uh, try to be cognizant of uh, of it and, uh, you know, limit it some. But, uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd, like I say, I'm with Boise. I, I think... The commentary adds flavor. It's like salt on the uh, uh, on the news, and uh, you don't want a little salt or a little pepper. You know, maybe you need to go eat in another kitchen. 
<laughs> well, you know, we also have feedback at CocoCrew.org. Well, that's so true. If you feel we've said something out of line or you disagree with something, it's not like it's a one-way conversation. You can certainly reach out to us and further the discussion. Definitely, either by email or, uh, or you know, there's a good chance if you feel you've been wronged, we could have you on air and we could talk about it. And we're pretty nice folks. We normally won't tear anybody up. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, uh, what do you think? Is there more to discuss here or is that about doing it? Solved it. <laughs> Resolved. Done. Well, okay. Then uh, let's y'all uh, this segment to conclusion. Thank you for listening. Uh, and we'll be back with uh, uh, the rest of the show. Turn any color computer with extended basic into a complete disk system with the new FD501 color thin line disk from Radio Shack. Store over 156K of data. Write your own disk programs or use ready to run software. The disk operating system is built into the program pack cartridge that connects the disk drive to your color computer. And the FD501 has room to add a second drive, providing an additional 156K of storage. This month only, purchase a two-drive FD501 color thin-line disk system for just $359.95. That's a 25% savings. Apply in-store for a CityLine revolving account and pay as low as $20 per month. The FD501 thin-line disk. Only from Radio Shack, a Tandy company. All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back to another tech segment with uh, your host, John Linville. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about project enclosures. Uh, so rather than talking about building hardware or designing software or any particular features or technical features of either, we're going to talk about how to close in uh, your, your hardware project into some sort of box that makes it more of a product than a project. And there's a variety of reasons to do this. Um, tends to make them a little more sellable. Tends to make them last a bit longer because you know, if you have a bare circuit board just sitting out, you can have electric shock, you can have shorts, that sort of thing. Uh, if you have wires just hanging off of a circuit board, they will tend to have some stress on them. They can break off the board. <laughs> so generally speaking it's just a good thing to have your circuit board enclosed this is where the a lot of people kind of get stymied once they figured out it's hard enough for some people to figure out how to, get to design a circuit board you know the next step is a little difficult now we all have seen like a radio shack in the days past they always had well project boxes available uh and sometimes they're made out of steel or, or plastic or whatever but they're just a box <laughs> And maybe some screws to let you open one side of the box or different ends of the box or whatever. But not really a lot of information on what to do with them or how to customize them. And that can be difficult. So we'll get to that a little bit later. But in many cases, this will involve a certain amount of getting your hands dirty with some hand tools and doing some measurements and that sort of thing. But the results can be quite nice. Depends on what your project is. Nowadays, uh, a lot of projects... Uh, electronics projects or what would have been true electronics projects nowadays are really more software projects but they're built around something like an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or some other off-the-shelf board that basically has a CPU on it it's a little computer all by itself some of these ESP whatever blah whatever the numbers are <laughs> um, all those projects um, you know most of them you can get some sort of cases to go around them from a variety of sources quite often they're basically exact fit for the board so many of the boards have a certain number of ports on them 
and uh, there'll be you know in, uh, holes in the in the cases to accommodate those ports, which may be appropriate for your project, maybe not. It kind of depends. Your project is, on something like the Raspberry Pi, you might have a project that only uses a couple of the I/O ports on the board. May seem a little silly to have the board out there with you know video, different kinds of video ports and serial ports and stuff that you're not even using. Of course, if you're not using them, you might have chosen the wrong board in the first place. But it kind of depends. So quite often with like an Arduino, you can get plastic boxes that fit them, and they'll have some knockouts for some of the different ports so that you can expose them if you want to, but you don't have to. Uh, the Arduino in particular is built around the idea of these um, stackable shields. So quite often you can get boards for them that accommodate some of the more common shields. So you may or may not have those shields, or you might have a, a different shield. <laughs> I don't know. You have to investigate what's available if you're using that sort of option. But um, just know that if you are using some sort of off-the-shelf board, there's probably an off-the-shelf case that could at least enclose it in plastic and maybe make it look a little bit nicer, a little more saleable, a little more of a product than just a project. That said, moving beyond to, um, um, you know, you can get the boxes, kind of like I was mentioning with Radio Shack, you can get what are known as project boxes. And they come um, in a variety of materials, you know, uh, there's probably some, I'm sure you can get steel boxes, uh, you can get aluminum boxes, you can get a variety of plastics, different kinds of plastics, translucent, different colors. <laughs> um, and um, perhaps more importantly, you can get them with different kinds of openings, um, different shapes. Um, not all of them are just square, or rectangular, uh, or cubic boxes. Um, you can get them uh, with sloped fronts and rounded sides and just all sorts of things. Uh, so if you want to look into finding project boxes, there's um, a variety of uh, internet sources. I'm not even going to cite them. They're just too easy to find with Google. Uh, just Google for uh, project boxes or project enclosures or electronic enclosures. You'll find a, a lot of suppliers. And you go and you look and they'll have the huge list and they'll give you some idea of the of the dimensions and maybe they'll have them broken down by shapes or by materials maybe even by colors, you know, it just depends, but <laughs> you can find them out and so pick up boxes roughly the size that you need, and, and it really probably needs to be a little bit bigger than, you know, the minimum, um, just because, you know, it can't be smaller than the minimum. <laughs> um, but uh, you can find them, you know, like I said, look around. Uh, you need to have a good idea of the size of a project box you're going to need, so um, one thing that I did, like with the um, the joy the, the Sega Joypad adapters that uh, Neil sells, uh, the original well the original prototype was just on perfboard, and then the first PCB I did, uh, I just did a PCB that was well maybe not the minimum size, but a size that was comfortable for me, and then used that to pick an appropriate box, and then I went and redesigned the board to fit the mounting uh, options available to the box that we'd picked. Um, but, uh, that depends on being able to get some stuff, uh, some information about the box. So either, so anyway, you need to find your box. If you go through some of these suppliers, you usually can find, uh, mechanical drawings before you ever even buy the box. That'll give you an idea of what sort of mounting options are available, you know, where the screw holes are, if there are screw holes or mounting lugs at all. Some boxes just have slots on the sides, 
so then your your PCB just sort of slides in on a slot. You need to have some idea, you know, how low in the box does the, are the slots, how thick are, are the slots. Your PCB, of course, needs to match that. PCBs are often roughly the same size, but they're not all exactly the same size. So, uh, meaning thickness, not always the same thickness. So you want to be aware of the thickness of your PCB and make sure your box has a slot. If you want to use a slot mounting, you need to make sure the box has a slot that fits. Um, so anyway, there's lots of suppliers available on the internet, um, both just plain old plastic box suppliers. Um, usually you can go through the the big electronic suppliers like say a Jamco or, or a Mauser and uh, find a lot of boxes that way. Uh, you also can go on eBay looking for project enclosures, and there will be a lot of them. Um, there's some uh, uh, problems with using eBay. I find that eBay pro uh, project enclosures quite often they're less likely to provide you than any mechanical drawings. Um, so it's a little harder to, to get started on your project before you've actually bought them. And quite often when you're buying stuff like that off of eBay, it comes from China, so you order it and. By the time it arrives, you wonder who sent you this nice plastic box as you've been wondering about <laughs> because you forgot that you ordered it. Um, uh, anyway, also, if you're buying off of eBay, you need to be aware of the supplier restrictions. Sometimes the suppliers will just, you know, the, the box you buy may be the last one they ever sell and, and they just may not be available. And so if you want to build one project and you get one box, that's fine. If you want to go into the market making a sustainable product, you need to make sure that your boxes you're buying are, are still going to be available as you continue to make runs of the product. Uh, so something to be aware of. Anyway, um, so what we you get is a box, and it'll be probably either aluminum or plastic. Um, it'll have various openings available, um, probably some way to shut them, some sort of door or whatever. Um, you pick the right box, you might have a battery compartment, um, um, you might have uh, screws that open the box and maybe in more than one place. Um, it's all really it just depends on what you what you've need and what you've chosen. Um, and so then, you know, you've got your square box and hopefully you've got something you can put your PCB into. But then usually you need some way to uh, to connect your PCB to something outside the box, power, or nothing else. So, uh, again, some boxes will accommodate that. They'll have a battery um, case or something. Um, but usually what you'll need to do is mark off the box and, and figure out um, where you're going to screw hole or where you're going to drill holes in it. Um, if you're building like a joystick, you'll need to figure out where you're going to cut holes to mount the buttons. Uh, where you're going to cut holes to mount the, uh, the the stick mechanism, you know, the gimbal or, or whatever you're using. Um, so you need to figure that out. Uh, again, if you have the mechanical drawings to begin with, assuming they're correct, you might be able to get started. Uh, it's advisable to make some sort of template out of, say, cardboard, and uh, you can um, get that right and then find some way to register that on the box meaning uh, you know some way to make sure you put it on the box where <laughs> where the holes on your template match to where you want the holes in the box you know something like having a screw hole you can put a put the template on the box and and put a screw in to hold it in place something like that um but anyway yeah this is when at this point you need to get out your new tools you need to get out your drills uh, you may want to use um, a handheld uh, drill 
what they call like an egg beater style drill. They're a little more easy to control uh, on uh, in small uh, spaces if you're using just hand tools. Um, uh, or you might use a drill press. Um, you want to, you have to be aware of things like what kinds of bits to use. If you use a normal twist bit, a lot of times, uh, especially if you're using handheld tools, those are a little bad about walking uh, along the surface. Um, so you, you may want to use what's called a Forstner bit, which does a little bit better job of actually cutting a nicely dressed round hole. Um, uh, quite often, uh, you want to start your holes um, using your fingers to rotate the drill bit. Uh, to at least get it started, uh, because once you know they kind of start cutting the hole, then they don't walk around as much. It's all basic kind of, essentially, it's basic carpentry stuff that, you know, in another age we might would have learned in the eighth grade shop class, but since nobody has those anymore, <laughs> you you might not be as aware of uh, the basic stuff there. But but yeah, so you you want to cut your holes, you can drill your holes. Um, if you need to cut more square holes. Um, you know, you can, uh, you might use a drill to remove a lot of the material and then use some, like a file to, to straighten up the square edges. Um, if you're using pa uh, plastic or thin aluminum or something, you might be able to use a tool called a nibbler, which is uh, pretty good at, um, cutting out, um, straight edges and corners. Um, but, um, but yeah, you're gonna have to do some hand modification if you start with an off-the-shelf box. Um, and so, like I said, um, you probably want to try to get mechanical drawings from your supplier. Uh, if you don't have them, you can't get them, then you want to use, um, you know, a micrometer or, or some, otherwise be very careful about your measurements. And it's definitely a measured twice, cut once kind of situation because once you cut the hole, the hole's going to be there. <laughs> and maybe that's not so bad if you're building one thing for yourself. Um, but if you're building a, you know, several, then you want them all to be pretty much the same, and you certainly don't want random holes in any of them. All right, well, so there you go. You can either use starting, um, we're talking about off-the-shelf stuff that is sort of exact fit, like for an Arduino. Uh, we're talking about the traditional project boxes, which are kind of just, you know, square, usually square or cubic boxes, but they can be curved or have different styles depending on what you find. Uh, limit is mostly your willingness to search for it, and uh, it's a pretty good chance if you want it, somebody else is providing it, uh, you just have to keep looking. Um, now, what if none of those are really good enough for you? Uh, so you might want to go on to, to a custom uh, design, maybe you're... Uh, maybe what you're building is especially, um, uh, well, maybe especially big or, or awkwardly shaped, um, or needs, um, going to need a lot of access holes or whatever, you know, so something like the, um, a multi-pack replacement is going to be kind of an awkward thing to fit into an off-the-shelf, um, box because of, uh, you know, sort of has an L shape and some big holes and whatever. So you may want to go ahead and try to figure out how to get a custom design, uh, a custom box built, which, um, typically you're going to need to start, you need some kind of 3D, uh, design, um, which, um, is a more common skill than it seems used to be, thanks to the, kind of the maker movement out there. A lot of maker spaces have people, um, uh, doing a 3D design, um, uh, in like SketchUp or something like that. Um, but, um, so, Ultimately, what kind of things are you talking about? 
so one one construction technique that's pretty common with building these sort of boxes is um, you can do um, laser cutting, and you can laser cut um, a variety of materials, including uh, like acrylic, um, which is usually you know kind of a clear, um, like a plastic glass kind of replacement. Uh, you can cut them out of wood, like spruce or something like that. Um, You'll see that then you've seen the boxes that are uh, people build things and they'll be wood and they'll have almost like a black uh, along the edge and that's because the laser literally is burned through the wood to cut it, um, which some people like that look, some people don't, you know, depends on you. Um, but you can also cut them out of plastic, uh, whatever. Um, but typically, characteristic of the uh, laser cut designs is um, you'll have kind of a, a, a castellated a side or a, kind of a, a tab and space, tab, space, tab, space. <laughs> and uh, so that when you have put them together, like in the, you'll have the two, uh, you know, the top, say a wall and, the, and a side and a bottom, and the tabs on one will fit into the spaces on the other. Um, and... Um, then you kind of screw them together, and there's a variety of ways to do that. Um, sometimes the screws will actually kind of embed in some more tabs and so that you get kind of a T-shaped thing, and, and um, the, the tabs might trap a nut in them that um, is then used with another screw to hold it in. It can get pretty elaborate. Um, if you talk to your local makerspace people, there's probably somebody who knows how to design laser-cut stuff with a you know screw tab construction. Um, you, I don't know. You may want to go look into it. Um, this is typically going to be square. Well, so it's like software for designing square boxes this way, or, or rectangular, cubic kind of stuff, um, is pretty much dime a dozen. Uh, but um, people who know what they're doing will know how to maybe accommodate a more advanced shape if you want for some reason. Um, if you want to have um, other than 90 degree angles, there are, are possibilities there, but typically uh, you're going to be ending up with a box that's basically a square box. And, um, you know, you may wonder why you didn't just start off with a, <laughs> a basically square project box off the shelf. Um, I don't know. It depends on what you like. Um, uh, typically, uh, then you're, uh, you're still going to need some holes and such cutting it. If you're doing laser cut, um, obviously the laser cutter, while it's cutting out the, the sides and the back or whatever, can also cut holes in there for you. So that can be helpful for cutting access points for for electronic uh, electronic parts uh, or whatever. Um, for, for like your DB9s or, you know, whatever. Um, okay, well, so that's one way to cut things out. Another way uh, that's similar... Uh, is uh, with a CNC or what was it? It's a computer numerical controller. Uh, uh, basically, a CNC is a computer-controlled router, and uh, I don't mean router like on the internet. I mean router like um, one of those fancy um, handheld, uh, almost like a drill thing that you um, you typically was used to to um, to chamfer the edges on the woodworking. <laughs> Um, but you uh, put that into a computer-controlled machine with an XY table, and suddenly you can go and cut things out. And similar to the way you cut things out with a laser cutter, um, although um, you can get uh, a whole lot of, uh, you can get, well, I don't know for sure if it's a, a limitation, but it seems to be that you can get, uh, with a CNC machine, you can get bigger designs cut out. 
and uh, sort of more complicated, complex stuff. You certainly can get things with like uh, chamfered edges and and V cuts and and engraving and that sort of stuff, um, which can be pretty nice to have like a design engraved in the side of your box or whatever. Um, that um, there's a limited amount of that sort of thing, like the engra engraving, especially available with laser cut. But generally speaking, when you're cutting with a laser, you're just cutting straight th straight through, so you end up with 90 degree walls on your cuts. Um, and again, like CNC, you can use different tools, and you can end up with the rounded or chamfered edges, um, um, and um, pretty complex designs. Um, but ultimately, you're still going to have to put the box together. So there's going to have to be some way that you have, you know, interlocking tabs or, or uh, just different places to put screws or whatever to hold your your box together. Um, again, you're going to need somebody to help with SketchUp or whatever 3D design software to work with your CNC. Hopefully, that person has enough experience that can guide you a bit on what the construction ought to be. Now. Uh, now the, the the topics that uh, people seem to jump to first, uh, I'm going to get to um, not quite last, but finally at the idea of 3D printing um, a case or whatever. Um, so again, you're going to need someone who's good with 3D design, you know, SketchUp or whatever um, similar products to produce your your design that you want to have printed. Uh, there are considerations to be taking in, taken uh, when you can design something for 3D printing because of the way the 3D printing um, deposits layer upon layer. It kind of um, restricts to some degree what's printable. Yeah, uh, overhangs and that sort of thing can be a problem. Uh, so depending on how complex your physical design is, you may need to print multiple pieces and figure out how to get those uh, joined together either with screws or glued or whatever. Um, but, the, you know, typically we're just talking about boxes with holes in them. <laughs> so uh, with 3D printing, you have holes in your box. You tend to just not print the holes. <laughs> um, or you print, you know, the edges of the hole. Basically, the holes are there as you print. Um, so you don't have to take them away. Now, quite often, holes in 3D printed objects don't look very nice around the edges. So they might need to be cleaned up a little bit. Um, I personally am not a fan of the way 3D printed objects look uh, in terms of um, even the nicest ones still tend to be you, when you feel them with your fingers you can kind of feel that you know that layer upon layer kind of creates like a almost like a grooved side effect. Um, some like I said the higher quality printers 3D printers are not as bad. Um, but um, they do tend to have weakness so again between those layers at some point. So if you're going to put much stress on your box, um, you know that's probably where they'll fail is between two layers. Um, so just be aware of that. Um, but I, I think the biggest problem with 3D printing is that if, if your box gets to be of any size, they take forever. They just, uh, you know, you can imagine you're putting down that tiny little layer of plastic and uh, run around the uh, all of the the uh, you know the surface at one layer and then you go back and you do it again for the next layer and, and you probably have certainly dozens maybe hundreds I wouldn't be surprised if in some case if you have thousands of layers on a sizable piece and they just run and they run and they run and they run and they take a long time um, 
And uh, so this is part of the limitation on, say, you know, uh, uh, we've the community, the Cocoa community, has been uh, depending on John Strong to produce a lot of 3D printed boxes for uh, for Ed Snyder's projects and for his own cartridge cases and a few other things. And um, you know, I know he's got uh, a couple of 3D printers, and and uh, when it gets close to Cocoa Fest time, they run I think 24 hours a day for two or three weeks at a time. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's the big the biggest limitation with the 3D printed objects is just they take a while to produce, whereas um, something that's laser cut or CNC cut, it takes a little time to cut them out. But uh, basically, you put the material down and you kind of press go, and it goes and cuts them out in an amount of time that as a human you can probably you know imagine it <laughs> it's uh whereas 3d printing just kind of goes and goes and goes until it's done um anyway but 3d printing is has a lot of flexibility and can produce a lot of different shapes and stuff uh again the, the designs are not always that physically strong because of that layered uh, construction but as long as the as long as the shape is what's important and not the actual strength of the box, like in something that's really just an enclosure, that's not really much of an issue. Okay, so one more um, in the custom design um, category where you're going to have to do a lot of um, 3D design. Uh, if you're really serious, you can go about um, doing uh, injection molding. Um, so the injection mold, of course, is is basically you, you produce a you know a mold typically made out of uh, you know it's, uh, well you typically wouldn't use it and touch it yourself somewhere it's going to have to be made and produced out of aluminum or steel or something and they put it in a machine and the machine gets some really hot plastic you know ABS plastic typically and they squeeze it and literally inject this hot plastic into the mold and then give it just enough time to cool off to where it hardens up a little bit and then the mold kicks them out and uh, you know this is what you're used to looking at when you get uh, plastic cups or, or um, um, you know football helmets or, <laughs> or almost any box or anything for electronics that you'd get from a commercial vendor um, and uh, this is the method that we use for producing the cartridge cases that uh, we, we've been producing cartridges with the past couple of years um, this is not at all a cheap method. Uh, I do believe it produces a very quality uh, output, uh, but you you do need uh, some special skills for doing the design. Uh, to you have to take into account the the, the three the injection molding process. Um, now it used to be uh, harder to get this. Um, uh, but um, just like now, you can go to um, uh, certain services and get 3D printed stuff done even if you don't have a 3D printer you can order a 3D printed object a lot of those places now are starting to offer injection molding as a service as well again it's not going to be cheap but it might be cheap enough depending on how many you want to make um, so you want to take a look at that okay so there's one more custom uh, plastic design or whatever a way to produce custom plastic parts that I'll talk about um, and this is what I did actually before we were doing the injection molded cartridges. You can you can actually do a, a resin cast plastic, um, and in this case you you can buy a plastic resin. Uh, typically, well you can get them at hobby stores. Um, the nicer stuff you want to order online, but basically you get um, typically a two-part resin. So you have 
it's just like uh, if you've ever used epoxy to uh, to glue something together, you have the two chemicals, you have to mix them together, and then they become a glue. In this case, you have the two chemicals, and you mix them together, and then they become a plastic resin. And uh, typically, once you mix them, you have a limited amount of time to work with them uh, before they start to harden up. Um, and so you, you mix the, the liquid resins, the two parts together. You may or may not add some dye, depending on what colors you want. Um, and then uh, you pour them into a mold. And so typically your mold is going to be made um, probably from uh, um, uh, silicone. Um, and uh, so you're going to have to, you're definitely going to get your hands dirty doing the resin casting. You're going to have to make the mold from silicone. That's kind of a messy process. It basically amounts to pouring some silicone, some liquid silicone into a box and then putting your, your item you want to make the mold of into the box and then pouring some more silicone on it. Um, uh, you know, depending on how you're going to, you may make a one-piece mold or you might make a two-piece mold. Um, anyway, your molds will wear out, so you want to keep your original around um, because of, you, you can only get so many casts per mold before they end up destroyed. Um, but uh, once you have your mold made, whether it's one piece or two piece, um, you can go about your resin casting. You know, you make a resin, pour it into the mold, give it enough time to set up, remove it from the mold. Hopefully, don't damage your mold. Pull the plastic out. Hopefully, you know, don't damage that. Hopefully, you got a good pour. You know, so you have to wor worry about um, air bubbles uh, and getting in your um, the poured uh, resin because uh, that'll, of course, make a defective part. Um. <laughs> anyway, it uh, it's a little bit of a skill, but you can do it. And once you've done it, if you want to reproduce something you already have, you can make very exact copies of something down to fairly minute details. Uh, if you're using it to produce something new, then you're going to need a bit of a uh, you need some sculpting skill to create the original shape that you then use to make your molds. Um, but um, you know, if um, you can also do that, uh, you can start with say, like I started with a Radio Shack cartridge case, and then wanted to make some some uh, changes to its shape. So I used um, some modeling clay to uh, add on to the cartridge case shape, and then made the mold out of that, and then um, cast the resin in there. And so the, the pieces I made were not they were not identical to the original Radio Shack cases. They, you know, the, they were the shape that I had modified them to be. So you can do some customization there. You can, you know, put, um, you know, you can cut things in, have, um, you know, like a stencil or, or whatever to uh, almost like a brand or whatever in the parts you made. I don't know. It's really all up to you. I would not recommend resin casting for uh, high um, quantity, but uh, again, if you have low quantity or a very specialized kind of thing you need to do, uh, resin casting is an option. Um, again, your mileage may vary. Oh, and also, if you're doing resin casting, uh, you might consider using um, uh, some of the 3D design skills we talked about earlier, and instead of producing your final parts, you use those to produce your mold and uh, produce your mold out of something durable and then you're gonna you know have to coat it with the release agents or whatever so that you can get your plastic parts out of the mold once you build it <laughs> um but um anyway something to think about all right no, ma no matter how you produce your parts 
Um, you know, assuming uh, other than the off-the-shelf stuff for like your Arduino or whatever, uh, if you need to do any kind of um, modifications or whatever, uh, any kind of hole cutting or uh, to get cables in and out, um, you're going to want to think about putting uh, grommets in uh, to keep your cables from wearing out against the edges of the holes you made in your plastic cases, um, that sort of thing. Um, if you put a cable into your box, you want to think about stress relief, so that if you pull on the cable, you're not yanking on the solder joints, uh, so you don't accidentally yank your cable off the PCB inside the enclosure. Um, um, typically, you want to think about getting some sort of rubber feet for your box, so that it's able to sit on the table and not scratch up a table. Even if you only ship with a bare PCB, you may want to think about putting rubber feet on it just so it keeps the PCB off the table. Um, oh yeah, and uh, depending on what you want to do with your, your plastic box, if you produce something custom, uh, you want to think about, uh, you may want to think about uh, adding some sort of tabs to your box you produce so that you can then screw your box into something else. Um, so, uh, it depends on what you're building and how that might be appropriate, but, um, you know, say if you're, uh, I don't know, say if you're building something that made floppy drives better, you might think about putting tabs on it so you can screw your box into uh, a floppy drive case, <laughs> for example. I don't know, maybe that's silly, but, uh, something to think about. Um, anyway, well, I think that covers a lot of ground. Uh, sort of a brain dump here on um, my own experience uh, dealing with um, getting enclosures for electronic projects. There's probably other options that I haven't covered. Um, I don't know. If you think of any, feel free to let me know. Or if you have questions about things I've covered here, obviously reach out, send us email, feedback at cococrew.org, or send something to me at john at cococrew.org. And uh, I'll be happy to hear from you, and I'll try to answer any questions you might have. All right, well, I think that's enough for now, so uh, happy cocoaing, and uh, we'll see you later. The Coco is a powerful computer, and the Multipack enables you to expand with RS-232, floppy controller, and hard disk drives. But don't you think your Coco would be a lot nicer without all of the mess hanging off the right side? Of course it would. The Connect Expander replaces the lower half of your Coco case and allows mounting two SCS decoded devices like a floppy and hard drive controller inside of your Coco. The Expander board includes a 12 volt power supply and provides a built-in no-slot RS-232 port. The external cartridge slot is still available for game cartridges or additional hardware. The Expander kit is just $124.95. Or you can purchase just the board alone for just $99.95. It's great for repacking a Coco in a PC case. The Expander from Connect, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Well, 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 as you find yourself near the end of the Coco Crew podcast on episode 38, well, it's not quite the end yet. Right now you are inside Neil's Corner. And on this segment, I'm going to talk about a game called Gnome's Quest. Yes, gnome as in that Travelocity mascot. Anyways, I've just recently found out about this game from a post Ron Delvaux made on his very own Facebook group called Ron's Garage. If any of you are unfamiliar with Ron, he's an active member in the Coco community and appears frequently on Coco Talk. I like Ron because he usually does very interesting show-and-tell message posts, and a lot of the time it's on Coco stuff that is rare or uncommon, such as this game, Gnome's Quest, that I was completely unaware of until now. 
All right, on to the game. Gnome's Quest is coded by Mike Snyder and was published by Sportswear. Now, I have definitely heard of Mike Snyder, as he did a pile of other games for the Cocoa platform, but I've never heard of the publisher Sportswear. Seems like an odd name to me. Did they release any sports games? Hmm, I'm not quite sure. Maybe if any of you who are listening, you can chime in and send me some feedback. Gnome's Quest was coded in 1990 and requires a Color Computer 3 with 128K of memory and a joystick plugged into the right joystick port. It is a platform-style game with static screens, meaning the screen does not scroll. The best comparison to describe this game to is a cross between Qbert and Rupert's Rhythm. The object is to jump on all the different platforms and change their color. However, you do not need to change all the platform's color to pass the level. You basically just need to find the hidden platform that will suck you in and take you to the next level. But if you want to boost your score, jumping on as many platforms as possible will definitely help. The nice thing is, you can memorize on each level what platform will suck you in, because it doesn't change randomly, as they always stay the same. As far as I can tell, there are no enemies in the game that come after you, although I haven't made it past stage 1 level 4 yet, so I could be wrong in the later stages and levels. It's tricky enough without enemies, just timing your jumps perfectly so you don't fall off the platforms. One last thing to note, if you see a series of platforms joined together, you cannot walk across onto them. Even though they're completely together, you still must jump onto each one of them, otherwise you will slip and fall through the cracks. I learned this the hard way. The game has very nice high-res color graphics that showcases the Coco 3 modes nicely, and it does feature a little bit of music on boot up and on the starting of each level. I think it would have even been cooler if it featured some digitized audio like in Rupert Rhythm. But hey, beggars can't be choosy as I'd be hard-pressed to code a dot on the screen in assembly language. Ron was nice enough to put the disc image of Gnome's Quest on his Ron's Garage page, but I've also researched and tracked it down on the Color Computer Archive website. It's in a disc collection called Mike Snyder's Games. That zip file contains 10 disc images, and it's on disc number 5. I also noticed on disc number 6, there's a sequel to Gnome's Quest called Gnome's Quest 2 Firespire. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Possibly an upcoming review for next month. Alright, there you have it. Another fine game for you to load them on your Coco 3. I certainly hope you've got your Coco 3. Until next month, happy Coco Game. Gimmisoft presents Mac 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 Max Sound. Gimme Gimme Sop Sop presents Mac Mac Max Sound. Gimme Soft presents Max Sound. Max Sound presents Gimme Soft. Max Sound is a hardware software, high quality audio recording station designed for the new Color Computer 3 by Lucas Industries 2000. Max Sound allows you to store real music and voices in the Color Computer 3. 3, 3. Max Sound will provide hours, hours, hours of fun for the whole family. From Hell, 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 Helsinki to Christchurch, Max Sound, the quality recording studio of the 80s. From Gimmisoft. Well, we have officially reached the end of episode 38. I hope all of you enjoyed this month's installment of the Coco Crew podcast. We will, of course, return next month to a podcast player near you. I'd like to thank our host, John Linville, for gathering all the interesting news articles this month and providing another fantastic tech segment. Big thanks goes out to Mike Rowan for working super hard on those commercials and editing the show each month. i also like to thank Boise Pete for being a part of this show. Last but not least, we'd like to thank all of you who listen and support us each month. Like I've said in the past, if it weren't for you listening, 
while there really wouldn't be much point in creating this podcast. Keep your feedback rolling in. We do like hearing from you. Well, until next month, happy cocoing and retro forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance, dance. Let's go.